we need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education, about segregation, about humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Welcome to Buffalo What's Next. My name is Emily Watkins. Today I'm joined by Mark Talley, whose mother, Geraldine, was murdered in the 514 mass shooting last year. Over the past year, Mark has done a lot of work to honor his mother through starting a nonprofit and now with an upcoming book. And so we're so glad to have you here, Mark, to talk about the work you've been doing. Thank you so much, Emily. I'm definitely glad and excited to be here today. Uh, to start, I just want to ask you how you're doing. I know this is, you know, a, a difficult and busy week for you. I'm doing okay. Um, you know, unfortunately, since uh, last year, you get kind of, you get kind of used to the attention. Um, you know, I'm trying my best to use the uh, attention positively, uh, focusing on my organization, Agents for Advocacy, uh, along with my book coming out. Um, you know, this Sunday on five fourteen, uh, five fourteen, the day the devil came to Buffalo. But with the positivity, you know, comes the negative. You know, you have to constantly keep talking uh, about the day that your mother was assassinated. And I'm wondering with writing the book what that was like, because, you know, you mentioned that it's been difficult to continue talking about that day. And now you've written a book about that day. What was the emotion like writing that? No, it was definitely tough. You know, you go through. Well, for me personally, I went through a whirlwind of emotions you know, I always say, you know, I'm kind of a low emotion person, and that still remains true. But, you know, the emotions I went through at the time and jotting down these notes, getting the book ready were not necessarily the good emotions. I say not the not the love, the sorrow. Uh, I went through, you know, just the anger, um, rage, intensity, you know, just wanting to just, you know, punch a, punch my fist into a wall, punch everybody who I saw that looked like the terrorists. Um, but you know, I still I've done my best to channel that all into a into a healthy rage to just put it in in my organization and my book to continue trying to help the community the best way I can. What's it like being able to tell your story and your mother's story in your own words through a book rather than necessarily doing interviews like this one or doing, you know, media appearances? It's been great cause um, you know, I've been able to talk uh, about everything that I wanted to talk about. And, you know, talking to all the, uh, you know, the local news stations, na- uh, the national stations, you know, you learn you learn pretty quickly that they will cut stuff that they don't want in there. Um, you know, especially ESPN. They may just uh, not even air what you said to them. But, uh, you know, with this book, uh, I'm able to say everything that I want to say. Uh, you know, some of it, you know, it definitely may get dark. Uh, some may some parts may have humor in there that people necessarily doesn't you know they may not condone it but i'm just able to speak my own words um my own thoughts put everything how i felt 
um, in the immediate aftermath following 514 up to now into the book. And I'm just speaking, speaking my piece. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, what you put in the book and um, what are some of the things that you were able to say in the book that maybe you haven't been able to say before? Uh, the book is based on uh, my mother and I's relationship uh, growing up. It dwells into my 20s when I had to deal with partial complex epilepsy in which I was having, you know, just a bunch of random random seizures, cluster seizures at that, and, you know, was going through a number of um, just hard, painful emotions because I wasn't able to keep a job um, in the immediate aftermath following 514 and everything that I've done experience had to deal with and everything I felt. And I was wondering if there's any um, excerpts or any parts of the book that you wanted to uh, share with us on air. Uh, absolutely. I would, um, yeah, I can, would love to share an excerpt from the book. I quickly paused the video, realizing that I already witnessed the shootings of 12 of the 13 people that were shot that day. I leaned forward, putting my elbows on my knees and holding my phone tight. My mom was the last person killed. I asked myself as my eyes darted around the room. My heart went from racing to pounding. I knew that when I pushed the play button again, the next person the killer was going to find was my mom. I sat on the couch in a semi-permanent state of shock. A part of me desperately need needed to see my mom alive one more time. Unfortunately, I didn't have any videos of her to remind me of how she laughed when she saw something funny or sang while she baked cakes. I didn't have any phone messages from her to remind me of her voice and how she spoke. The only video record of my mom's existence, to my knowledge, was the one I was about to see, and I desperately needed to see her alive again. The other part of me was terrified to see her after watching the killer shoot so many victims in their heads. I mean, I knew my mom was about to be killed, but I just didn't want her to die in such a brutal way. Giant tears clouded my eyes as I reluctantly pushed the play button. The video resumed with the killer walking to the next aisle about to find my mom. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. And I know that one of the things I read online that you shared another excerpt, excerpt from the book is talking about how you remember your mom now and how um, you have a lot of memories of her in your dreams. Can, can you talk a little bit about maybe the ways that you continue to remember your mom, you know, and, and I imagine it has to be difficult, like having all these beautiful memories of your mom and then having this really difficult last memory of your mom. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll always still, you know, cherish and love all the memories that I have with my mother. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, I know I won't be able able to make any new memories, but the ones that I have, you know, I'll cherish forever and definitely with the dreams I have, too. Uh, you know, some of the dreams are funny. Uh, some are pointless. Uh, you know, some get real emotional. Um you know, one dream I had, I was just walking around the whole city crying. I knew why I was crying, but it was hard for me to tell people why I was crying. And they just didn't understand what was the point of me crying. But, you know, I knew that my mother was dead in the dream. 
but people had no idea who she was or why I was crying. So it felt like I was just the only person lost in the city in a ton of emotions, but no one understood why. And when I woke up, you know, I still had all the emotions I had and felt in the dream. But uh, physically, you know, you wouldn't have known um, you wouldn't have known that I was even crying earlier in my dream. What was it like having these dreams? Like when you wake up and reflect on them, like, do you think for you that dream spoke at all to any ways you've been feeling about how Buffalo is um, handled or responded to this? I feel like the, you know, those dreams are just, just my little slices of life, uh, you know, could connected me to my mother in some way. Uh, you know, my mother knew I was kind of the, you know, a very introverted person, uh, you know, um, I really lacked or showed emotions that much. So, you know, in my dream, it's a, it's an excellent way for me to release those emotions that I don't, uh, you know, when I'm a, when I'm alive and not dreaming. And when it comes to how the city of Buffalo has responded um, to everything, I mean, there's two different answers. On a micro level, I believe the community has definitely, uh, the east side has definitely um, connected a lot more. And you know, not the, you know, not the downplay all the you know surrounding suburbs. Uh, you know, the Williamsvilles, uh, Cheek the Wagas, East Aurora's, West Seneca's, East Amherst's, Amherst's. They have also, they've also helped as well. But um, I still don't think they grasped or understand still what happened. I mean, you know, they go over there. They go over there, do what they do, what they wanted to do to help out. But then they just go home and forget about it still. But it's a lot of positivity still with the people that's on Jefferson, with the people that's on the east side of Buffalo. You know, we're all trying to come together to spark or do some type of change. Now, on a macro level, um, I don't think nothing has changed. Uh, you know, east side of Buffalo is still, is still what it is after as it was prior. You know, unfortunately, it took a terrorist attack in for 10 people to be assassinated for the city to, you know, finally want to, you know, have conversations on what can be done. But those conversations have still been, are being had close to one year later. You know, I honestly feel, let's say if this wasn't tops on Jefferson, let's say it's, um, let's say if this was tops in Chictawaga or if it was tops on I believe the top spot at University Station. I believe that's considered Amherst or Williamsville. But let's say if it was that tops, or you know, let's say if it was the Lexington Co-op on Elmwood. You know, I think a lot of a lot more change would have been done compared to the change that's still being talked about uh, with the tops on Jefferson and the community. Yeah, and I remember um, in the days after going from being on the east side and talking with people and, and, and hearing people's stories. I went to the Target in Orchard Park and it was like people were just, it was like nothing had just happened and seeing people going through the worst days of their lives and then 30 minutes away, people, people seem completely unimpacted in some ways by what had just happened. Do you hope your book will reach the people who maybe maybe still don't fully understand what that experience was like for you and your family? I mean, I would hope it, 
you know, I would hope it reached people who aren't necessarily in that community to understand, you know, the anger and the rage that people in that community have. Uh, but unfortunately, I don't think it is because people, you know, people don't know how to have empathy or have sympathy for things uh, unrelated, unrelated to them. You know, the primary example, you know, we can use right now is with, um, you know, Congress, with government, you know, relating to women's rights. You know, they constantly want to, you know, take, you know, take women's rights away to birth control or being allowed to get an abortion. Um, you know, specifically in Florida, they're trying to, you know, basically take all of, uh, you know, gay gay rights um, as well. They want to try to take away the DEI uh, rights, too. And they're trying to take all of these things away because they're different. And people, you know, people are afraid of what's different, unfortunately. Over the past year and doing the work you've done and, and writing your book and, and leading your organization, um, have you found any ways to connect with those people who who are difficult to connect with or who maybe they don't? think they're racist, but they also aren't doing anything that's actively anti-racist. Like, is there anything that you've learned that helps connect with those people who maybe are a little bit harder to reach? The quote I'm about to use came from a friend of mine on, uh, on LinkedIn. He got the quote from a friend of his. So unfortunately I don't know her name cause I would love to credit her with this, but, uh, you know, basically I'm, you know, I'm not a white person's Google. I'm not an Hispanics person, an agent's person, an uninformed person's Google. You know, I can't give you all the information to allow you to change or help others. You know, that's your responsibility, your job. It's not my job to make you want to do something that you should automatically be doing. So the only thing I do is just try to inform my community of the things that we should and that we need to be doing. Um, you know, when it comes to having, you know, white allies, yeah, I'm, I would definitely welcome them. It's not like I'm going to, you know, shut the door in their face and tell them go somewhere else. Um, you know, a lot of things with the civil rights movement, you know, wouldn't have happened with, uh, without, you know, white allies. But at the same time, it's not my job to try to, you know, come up, you know, to an ill-informed racist and to beg and plead to them why, you know, why their beliefs is wrong. That's not my responsibility. I believe that responsibility should go on to the white people, to the good the good white people at that. And that leads to another thing, you know, when we talk about, you know, not all white people are bad. There's some good ones. You know, at this point, I don't care about the good or bad ones because the good ones need to, you know, the good ones, as I say, need to verbally press the bad ones. It shouldn't be the responsibilities of minorities to have to, you know, verbally press the bad ones. Definitely. It goes into that, the conversation of like, when you have privilege, how do you, how do you use that? And how do you learn how to listen and and respond the way that people need those responses? Exactly. You know, um, you know, here, I, I was born and raised, grew up here, east side of Buffalo, Maston Park, Cold Springs. Um, so, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It, there are some sketchy areas, 
But uh, even with that said, there's sketchy areas all over the city, if not the state. I'm pretty sure I could find some sketchy areas, you know, out in East Aurora or East Amherst. But, you know, I've always had privilege myself, you know. By the time I was 13, I was pretty much 6'6", 270 pounds. So, you know, everywhere I went, I always felt safe. You know, I was 12, 13 years old, you know, walking down East Ferry, East Delavan by myself without a care in the world. Uh, without a care, you know, I may get jumped. Somebody may try to hurt me. Now, I'm pretty sure, let's say if you were five foot six, 130-pound female, I'm pretty sure you you will definitely have a lot more, a lot more fear. But you know, who would I be to tell that you know five foot six, hundred and thirty pound female? You know, well here I just did it. I walked down there, you know, comfortably. Nothing happened to me. So you you should also be able, and that that comes in, you know, once again bringing up equity and you know, equality and equitability. You know, although two things may be equal circumstances may not you know make it equitable mm. you know being five six with a knife being six six with a knife although we both have a knife things necessarily still aren't equal now i probably should have used a more a more calmer analogy but you know my mom gave me a knife i always carried on me so i went with a knife yeah no and i i grew up in the country 30 minutes south of here my dad also gave me a knife and taught me (laughs) self-defense because i am a five foot seven 130 pound person and and it is like i think all of us have privilege in some ways and and less privilege in other ways and you mentioned that part of who you want this book to reach is people in your community and what do you hope people will um take away from the book and who do you hope the book reaches? Well, I'm definitely not going to lie. I'm not going to say this is a, you know, a self-help book. Uh, this is a book to be able to, you know, help, help control your emotions. But, um, you know, this book just describes everything, everything that I went through. Um, and I just want people to see it's, uh, you know, the things that people go through behind the scenes that you necessarily don't see just uh you know the destruction that uh you know systemic racism and gun violence can cause and what harm it can bring to one's you know emotional well-being how are you feeling about the book coming out and um what is it like having the release on the um remembrance uh it's a double-edged sword i mean you know, I definitely feel excited, you know. Uh, I get to say I'm an author, I guess. Uh, um, you know, I was able to put all of my emotions, uh, everything uh, I went through after 514. Um, I was able to put into a cohesive format with the help of uh, Jackie Abrams. Uh, she's an award-winning uh, international best-selling author. Uh, you know, she wrote the books Hush Money, Hush Money 2. Uh, she helped me organize the book, organize my thoughts to put it into a good, cohesive format for this book. And like I said earlier, I just wanted this book to describe, you know, the emotions I went through uh, and the effects that uh, gun violence and systemic racism can have on one's, you know, mental. 
So I was definitely excited about getting this book out, uh, you know, to the community, um, to the country, uh, hopefully make it national um, so we can, you know, spark a conversation regarding systemic racism and gun violence. I remember the first press conference, um, myself, all the families, Al Sharpton and Ben Crump did, um, along with attorneys uh, Terry Connors and John Elmore, you know, I said, you know, um, I won't be surprised if, um, you know, roughly a week later that another mass shooting happens. And in close to, I believe, uh, seven, seven to nine days later, you know, the shootings in Uvalde happened. Um, a few weeks, if not uh, a month later, you know, a mass shooting happened in Chicago. Um, and a few, you know, a few months, I believe, after that, a homophobic mass shooting happened happened in uh, Aurora, Colorado, at a nightclub. And, you know, we've just seen over the past month now, we've had two mass shootings uh, happen, one, I believe, in Atlanta and the other in in Dallas. And it seems like, uh, unfortunately, Congress is, uh, Congress government, they're more infatuated. Um, instead of talking about these gun rights or gun control, they would rather talk about, uh, you know, Let's stop having a pre-African American history classes. Let's stop talking about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and um, you know, let's let's force women to carry babies full term, regarding whether they were raped or not, or regarding whether this could uh, injure them. Um, they want to protect the baby's life, but let's say the baby grows up, and because of having that baby, now the that woman, the woman in the family, is struck into you know, poverty, now they don't want to help the woman or the family out with uh, access to, you know, health care or access to food. So it seems like, um, unfortunately, you know, uh, this country has an, inf- an infatuation with wanting to keep gun rights. And instead of talking about every time, you know, someone mentions gun control, you know, people... You know, the Republican Party, Party primarily, you know, take it as a means that, uh, you know, someone, you know, wants to take, take away, you know, your guns. But the fact, you know, in the terms of the uh, terrorists that came here to tops, that he was easily able to purchase tactical care, uh, was easily able to purchase an assault rifle, was easily able to purchase, you know, making an illegally, illegally modified assault rifle at that. The fact that he was easily able to do that with no with no type of background check too with that. But the fact if I wanted to be a hairdresser, you know, I have to go to school for this and get a, you know, certification. You know, it shouldn't be easier for me to become a hairdresser, become a barber, become a you know what a home health care aide than it is for somebody to easily purchase a semi automatic rifle before they were 18, I believe, at that. If you could say something to members of Congress about this. I mean, um, there's been over 200 shootings so far this year, more than the amount of days that we've had in this year. If you could say anything to them about what gun control should be or should look like, what would you say? And that goes once again, you know, I shouldn't have to be somebody's Google. Yeah. You know, they should. It's not that hard to see all the effects that gun violence is having. 
you know, I just consider, you know, I would just call them all stupid. Just get right up in their face, nose to nose. We'll just verbally press them and just call them all stupid. Call them all scum. You know, they are they are less than the dirt that I walk on on a daily basis. So it's, it sounds like in a lot of ways we have a huge education and empathy problem as a basis for all this. Uh, but unfortunately, I think it's too late for them because, you know, we have people in Congress, people in government representing people that's close to what? Maybe 40, 40 plus years younger than them. I mean, we have Joe Biden. I mean, no, he, I think he's a good person. I mean, he's definitely better by far than the last president we had. But how old is he? What? He's like, he's what, in his middle 80s? Yeah. You know, he was still born at a time where, you know, you could walk down the street, you know, call somebody the N-word. He, actually, I think he's he's a few years younger than the woman who accused Emmett Till. And she just recently passed away. So you have people in Congress, you know, still in their 70s and 80s who are older than the Civil Rights Act. When the Civil Rights Act said, uh, you know, a black individual was equal to a white individual. And I mean, I'm pretty sure you can ask any black individual right now. Do you feel do you feel equal to your white counterpart in society? And I think, you know, every black person would say, you know, no. You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. We'll be back with more after this. Our region is home to some of the finest communities in the world. Explore them through the Our Town series produced by WNED PBS, but captured by community members on the Buffalo Toronto Public Media YouTube channel today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're speaking with Mark Talley, the son of Geraldine Talley. And I know that you've done a lot of work as a young person to lead in your community. And I'd love to talk about that as well, because I think it's a great way to show that young people can take this lead. And I know you took the lead this year by creating your own nonprofit. Would you like to share a little bit about your journey working with those nonprofits to starting your own? Uh, It's been a surreal experience. Uh, You know, when I first started my nonprofit, Agents for Advocacy, in July, you know, I thought it would be you know, kind of just a grassroots type nonprofit, um, you know, just out on the streets, um, you know, doing small local stuff. And I never, you know, would imagine it would, you know, take off like a wildfire. Uh, in my wildest dreams, I didn't think it would be, you know, kind of as large as it is now, somewhat being on a national stage after being mentioned in Vice, uh, ABC, MSNBC, NBC, um, and with this, you know, our main goal is to try to bring about change. Uh, we want to bring more awareness on systemic racism and socioeconomic inequality so we can hopefully foster a reality in which one day uh, one's race, one's environment, you know, shouldn't dictate uh, one's future. And, you know, close to the past, 
you know, past year we've either done or taken part in 30-plus events. We've worked with, um, you know, Back to Basic Ministries, Pastor Giles, Western New York Peacemakers, Buffalo Fathers. Um, we've done events which were, you know, definitely sponsored. We got on radio at WBFO, uh, 93.7 Times Square Media. Uh, we worked with Roswell, United Healthcare, West Term, um, Erie County Medical Center, United Healthcare. Um, we're looking right now to work with uh, Aspire um, for an event we have coming up on August 5th, our back to school drive. We're trying to make it like a one stop shop center. Uh, we're doing this in conjunction as well with Epic. And Epic is, uh, you know, we definitely work with Epic. Um, know a lot over the past few events that we've done so it's definitely been um you know very very exciting um you know hopefully i name everybody that we work with because it's it's been a lot of people we have an event actually coming up on june 3rd with uh buffalo community french uh this is being sponsored by tops and tops uh you know they've definitely helped us out as well over the past year at a lot of our events but for june 3rd uh that's my mother's birthday. Uh, they're going to be helping us uh, provide uh, free food, um, free breakfast food, uh, Buffalo Community Fridge. They're going to be getting fresh produce, fruits. Um, we're just going to hand it out to the residents in the community. And we're also going to be providing hot meals with, I believe, uh, food truck KT uh, Caribbean or Carabana from uh, Niagara Falls. I know that you've worked with not only so many organizations, but you've done a wide range of events. And I know you've done educational courses, job training, helping people with their resumes, um, adopting a refugee family for Christmas and making sure they had what they need. Um, I'd love to hear more about the wide range of things that you've worked on and how they've impacted the community. All right. We've, um, you know, we're doing our socioeconomic classes and our, you know, socioeconomic community events. Uh, regarding the events, we try to mainly focus on health, education, um, along with providing, uh, you know, the you know, food in the community that residents need. Uh, when it comes to our classes, uh, this is, you know, one of our main focuses and priority. Uh, our classes usually involve business, financial literacy, health, and we usually just try to teach, uh, teach the people who come to these classes, you know, things they're not necessarily taught in school or don't know about. You know, the majority of the people don't know about interest rates, APR, uh, cancer rates, mental illnesses, uh, STDs, uh, preventable illnesses. And when I say, uh, you know, they don't know, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, they don't know what a preventable illness is but they don't know necessarily why it's higher on one side compared to the other. And then that's when we get into, you know, the poverty cycle. And the east side of Buffalo, unfortunately, has become a poverty cycle with no help. You know, nobody's going to come save us. Uh, we have to save ourselves. I know from being a disability reporter, like you said, it's not that people don't know. It's just they they haven't really been educated on some of these resources and some of these issues. And um, when people are able to get those resources and that education, it changes their lives. Has there 
been certain people you've met where like this access to these classes and this education you're providing has helped their life in a really significant way? Oh, uh, there's been two. Um, no, we recently just had one, one financial uh, literacy event. Um, and, you know, the woman that was there, she's, you know, real, you know, educated, real smart, probably smarter than me. But, you know, she told me, you know, uh, Know, being at this financial literacy class, you know, that encouraged her to start her own LLC business, which she already had on the side, but she wanted to make it a lot more official. You know, another, this was our, regarding my Thanksgiving drive in which we, you know, fed over a thousand plus people. This family came up to me and, you know, and they just started crying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, they started crying, giving me hugs. They were doing everything, thanking me so much because, you know, she just recently lost her job. She had three children. Uh, her grandmother lived as well uh, with them. Her mother uh, lived with them. You know, they didn't know what they were going to do, what they were going to eat that day. And, you know, I definitely, and, you know, they, they told me I definitely helped them out so much. So regarding these uh, classes and the events I do, um, yeah, I've definitely had a lot of people come up to me all the time just wanting to, you know, give me a hug, thank me on rare occasions. Some of the women just want to just squeeze me, give me a kiss, you know, just thanking me so much. And, you know, as I tell them, you know, you don't got to thank me. You don't got to hug me. I'm just doing this out of the goodwill of my heart. And just, you know, if I help you out, just sign the line. If you can, just help someone else out. You've done many different events and projects and worked with many different organizations. What needs have really um, become clear to you through this work that the community still needs that aren't being fulfilled? Once again, mainly health, um, education, housing. Uh, You know, once again, speaking, you know, we just talked about it, um, you know, somewhat roughly a few minutes ago, but health, you know, the east side highest, you know, the highest rates of, uh, you know, mental illnesses, STDs, cancer, uh, preventable illnesses and disease. When it comes to education, we have the worst, worst rates compared to other communities and cities. When it comes to housing, you know, you have, you have families that can't currently afford to rent that they're paying, and you're having slumlords or other companies buying property and raising the the rent that they can't currently pay now and raising it even higher. You know, I believe that uh I believe that the city would leave Jefferson how it is to fight for their own. But uh my views uh my views are eventually changing right now. I believe what's gonna happen is that uh, you know, unfortunately five fourteen made the uh Jefferson area, the east side a hot spot now. And that eventually this is going to speed up gentrification. And eventually, um, you know, once they keep raising the rates of everything over there, you know, people are going to have to be forced to leave. I know Mayor Brown mentioned in uh, his state of the city that over $300 million has already been put into developments in, as he said, East and West Buffalo. And he said that a lot of this 
money is going towards minority developers or working with minority developers. But from what you've seen, and, and, and you mentioned gentrification, do you feel like the east side is moving in the direction that the east side needs to move in, or is it moving in a different direction? You know, I like Mayor Byron Brown. Um, no, he's definitely given me some valuable advice over this past year. Uh, no, he's definitely one of the few people, you know, that, you know, he does care about me, not necessarily what I'm doing, but want to see how, you know, where my mental and emotional state is at. Um, you know, there are definitely, you know, there's a good portion of the things I do disagree with him on regarding uh, things that's happening in the city since 514. But, um, you know, I wholeheartedly believe him that $300 million is being invested to the city to help on the east side and west side of Buffalo. But where I would uh, give some pushback and disagree on, uh, is that money going to help the citizens and residents on those sites now? Or is it going to help those citizens uh, a decade from now? And I believe, you know, this money won't be helping the people now. It's going to be helping the people in 10, 10, 20 years from now. So so the future residents of those sides will be helped. And I would doubt that the future residents look like the current residents that's currently residing there. And it's important for those investments to go towards the people who are there now because these are families, right? Like these are families that for their futures, they need that assistance now. Exactly. I mean, we'll see what they're doing on Niagara Street with the redevelopment uh, redevelopment and the gentrification. You know, a good portion of those citizens, you know, they weren't there when the development, you know, originally started. You know, we see we see it going on in the Fruit Belt right now. The original residents and citizens you know, they weren't originally there when the gentrification started. And I believe it'll be the same thing here. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we see it happening right now with the Jefferson Corridor with them, you know, building this magnificent, you know, it's a very magnificent structure so businesses can come in. You know, 10 years from now, will that corridor be be housing the businesses that currently reside there? I know it will be a few. But will it be doing all of the businesses or will it be, you know, other businesses that weren't necessarily on the east side of Buffalo or or maybe from a different city entirely? So I don't think this is necessarily going to help the people who it's intended to help. What do you think could be done to make sure that people can remain on the east side, remain in their communities and keep their businesses and families there? Nothing at all. I mean, um, you know, do I want to keep keep these families? Let's say if I, you know, if I own a block, I'm a development firm. I own a block. I have ten houses. The rent is currently fifteen hundred dollars. You know, do I want to do I want to keep this block with these families in it, making fifteen thousand, or do I want to raise the rent up to twenty five hundred dollars, kick them out, and have people that can pay this easily? So now I just went from having 15000 to 25000 What do you believe should be done to support the current community and prevent that gentrification and prevent the focus from being just 10 or 20 years down the road? What are some things you'd really like to see done right now? 
better education. Um, now I was just recently on a panel with uh, now I wish I could say his name, so I'm just gonna have him have to call him Doctor B, Jillian, uh, Nanette Massey, Catherine Roberts, and um and Ed, and also an anchor as well. You know, I forgot who said it, but one of them said it. No, I believe Nanette Massey said it that, you know, the biggest thing we have to do is starts with education. And we definitely have to approve the education on the east side of Buffalo. We have it as of right now where just the, you know, the county controls everything. And I think it should be made where the, uh, where the district controls it. You know, I'm pretty sure, you know, the school board is doing a good job. I believe it could de- they could definitely be doing a lot better job. And I believe in order for education rates to increase, I mean, we have to make it more, we have to make it a lot more smaller so each district can control the schools in that district. And once again, we have some of the worst rates, so we have to do something regarding this. Um, We have to do something with some type of job training, some job program. Um, You know, once again, you go to the east side of Buffalo, if you see 10 Ten, um, if you see two black males, statistically speaking, one of them may not have a high school diploma. So things like this must be done, and it starts with education, and it starts with, and it starts with housing. But unfortunately, it's going to be hard to, you know, put the pitfalls of this on the mayor or, you know, on the state when you know, this is a country, this is a worldwide thing. Uh, This is something that stops at the top. I do want to ask, you know, you have these two events coming up over the summer um, on June 3rd and April 5th. Uh, What else are you up to this summer and how can people get involved? Well, this summer, um, you know, start in June 2nd in which myself, along with attorney uh, John Elmore, we're going to be sponsoring uh, specifically that event, we're going to be sponsoring uh, the Buffalo Funk Funk Foundation uh, with um, Marnetta Malcolm. Um, myself, I'm going to be there every Friday. Um, I'm going to be having selling copies of my book, 514, The Day the Devil Came to Buffalo, along with signing copies, um, along with um, the ev- event on August 5th. That's going to be taking place at uh, True Bethel uh, Baptist Church, Reverend Darius Prison. Uh, he's giving me access to the church, the parking lot, um, his closing pantry, and food pantry. So like I said earlier, we're trying to make this uh, just a one-stop shop for families to come in. We're going to be having a barber there as well, a uh, photographer, uh, school-related uh, appliances, toys, and books. And, you know, we're just trying to Try to make it on uh, easier for families coming up this year. Uh, we know with inflation increasing, salaries staying the same or decreasing at that, you know, it's definitely going to be hard. So we're just trying to do what we can, you know, this whole summer to help out families. Uh, we're still going to be having our community events as well uh, with classes. So you will be hearing a lot from agents for advocacy this summer. That's great to hear. And you mentioned that Aspire is also partnering with you on the back-to-school drive as well. Um, is there going to be any element to, of that drive that focuses on kids with disabilities? Uh, right now we're still in the talking stages with Inspire, Aspire. Uh, but, yes, they definitely um, 
Yeah, they said that they still want to work with us uh, to get the event set up. So, um, you know, I definitely believe, you know, more than likely it will be stuff to help children's, uh, children with disabilities. You know, myself, uh, you know, in my 20s, I don't know. Um, I, I know some people consider a mental illness either a disability by itself or just a mental illness, you know, so... Whatever you want to call it, I did have a mental disability in my 20s, you know, having epilepsy. Uh, it definitely cost me a lot of jobs, so I definitely know what it's like living life with a disability and especially having seizures. Uh, you know, you tell people you have a disability, they want to see some type of uh, some a physical proof of it. But, you know, when you tell them it's more mental, then they kind of look at you strange and funny or think you're faking. So it's definitely... You know, it's definitely hard having disabilities out here. And I was an adult, so I can only imagine how it is for children. So more than likely, um, I'll say there will probably be something for kids with disabilities there. But, uh, you know, me, me and Inspire were still in our talking stages, but they definitely uh, will be a participant. And I have non, non or less visible disabilities as well. And I know what you mean by people, they expect to see something, and then when they don't, they don't really understand it and sometimes finding support can be really hard but you mentioned that your mom was there for you through that experience um what was her support like through your experience of disability yeah this was in my 20s she was always worried about me um you know with it but you know being me being a man in my 20s uh i would just tell her you know i would playfully you know just tap on the shoulder no, tell her, man up, I'm good. You know, we were constantly just picking on each other. Uh, she would tell me to man up as well about about lots of things I was complaining about, mainly, uh, you know, my knees and my back. You know, being being six six, you deal with a lot of uh, a lot of more physical ailments once you get up out the bed, having you know, crack your knees, crack your back. So she would constantly tell me to man up about that. She didn't want to hear me complaining. Um. But I, I try to, I uh, didn't want to really let her know uh, regarding my um, medical stuff because, you know, I just didn't want her to worry too much about me. I understand. And I, I know, like, even just having someone to kind of joke with in a way and, like, encourage you in a way is important, too, though. Yeah, me and her, we definitely joked a lot of times. Um, you know, you, you would have to be inside the relationship because if you were outside looking in about the stuff uh no we would tease each other about you know you would think no you would think me and her didn't even love each other and you know unfortunately you know i deal with a lot of trolls like that saying you know i probably didn't even love my mother or you know you're just trying to profit off of this book you're trying to you're trying to just get rich and leave uh you seem happy that your mother's dead um you know even just even today um you know, through a technical glitch, uh, the pre-order edition of my book, 514, The Day the Devil Came to Buffalo, it got taken down off of Amazon. So I just uh, sent out the quick, you know, my apologies to everybody, everything will be refunded. And, you know, somebody messaged me saying, you know, that's God's, ways, that's God's way of trying to punish you because you're trying to get, get rich quick off the death of 10 people. So, you know, um, 
know, when this when this first started happening, I was getting these messages. You know, you know, I wanted to take the fight to him. You know, you know, the East Side of Buffalo would never leave me. Plus, I spent time in Detroit as well, so I'm I'm all about the action. But you know, you got to think now with a now I'm, I have to think now with a better a better mentality because you know now I'm becoming a public a public face, a public figure in the city, as people keep telling me. Plus, I'm running an organization. So, you know, and once again, this was the advice I asked, uh, you know, Mayor Brown about how do you deal with the constant trolls, the constant hagging, the constant people telling you, you know, trying to get a rise out of you. You know, as he told me, just let the haters hate, but you got to keep moving. I'm so sorry you have to go through that because that's horrible that people contact you and talk to you that way. Um, how do you how do you manage that negativity and like how do you take care of your mental health while doing this difficult work of reflecting on the most difficult day of your life and honoring your mother and advocating for your community how do you take care of yourself you know, it's kind of easy, you know. Like I said, although my mom was a very extroverted person, you know, I'm 180 degrees the other way. I'm very introverted, so, you know, if you're an introvert, you know the simplest things can keep you entertained for the longest. Uh, all I got to do is put on my Pokemon, play my Nintendo Switch, you know, and I could, I could get lost for a good 10 hours straight, and that'll just keep me, keep me calm, keep me sane, get me happy. On a side note, I love playing Pokemon on Nintendo Switch. It is so much fun. I feel that. I come home from, like, just chaos, and I'm like, beep, 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 <laughs> call another one. It's just, it's a great way to relax. You know, I do want to make sure we um, wrap up by asking you, what do you feel has changed in Buffalo, and what do you feel still needs to change? Once again, on a micro level, the community is getting a lot more tighter a lot more close-knit but on a no macro level i don't think nothing has changed um uh, and i don't know if things will change i believe you know you know the east side of buffalo is being kept down or pushed down and we're not giving the tools to better ourselves do you have hope for buffalo then i mean where do you stand emotionally with where your city's going do you have hope that do you have hope for the east side i definitely have hope um i wish things to get better i want things to get better you know i myself is trying to make the east side better but uh you know we've seen the uh slow the slow destruction of the east side of buffalo i mean if you talk to the older residents here you know, they'll tell you how Jefferson was a striving black community, you know, um, and right now it's it's no longer striving. I feel, I just feel all the money and everything is going to other places, you know, whether from redlining or gerrymandering, you know, no money, nothing is being recycled back into the community. How can they get connected with your organization? Feel free to follow us, Agents for Advocacy, on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Uh, you can also visit our website, agentsforadvocacy.org. 
and the book will be available will be available on May 14th, uh, Sunday, Mother's Day. Unfortunately, the no, I don't like saying anniversary, but um, I have to find a better word to use. But yeah, unfortunately, the one year anniversary of the uh, Tops Terrorist attack. The book will be available and made for purchase on Amazon that day in both paperback and hardcover editions. Um, sometime in the near future, it will be made into an audiobook as well with me reading. Uh, I'm also trying to put it uh, put the book into local bookstores. Uh, the first bookstore it's going to be in will be at uh, Fitz Books and Waffles on Ellicott Street, I believe. Uh, and I'm going to actually be having a book signing that day. Uh, on June 9th, I believe. But once again, if you want to um, stay stay more in tune, more informed about that, you can just easily visit us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. I do want to end by asking for other young men out there who see what you're doing and want to take take the anger, the frustration, or the feelings they have inside and make it into something productive and make it into an organization or a book, um, what would your advice to them be? Change starts with you. Um, you know, if you really want to change, if you really want to make a difference, then start doing it. Um, you know, it was, you know, from personal experience, it was easy to see a lot of people last year, you know, around 514 and afterwards, you know, trying to make a con- um, trying to make an effort to do good in the community but that was only when the, you know, the lights were brightest. You had all the, uh, you know, local and national, you know, cameras and reporters out there. But once those lights leave, you know, you've seen a lot of them left as well. So it's, you know, it's easy to want to do good when you're forced to do good or it's a lot of attention uh, to do good. But, you know, can you still do good on a Saturday, you know, Saturday at 6.36 p.m. when you haven't eaten for six hours and it's windy and cold outside and you're at a you're at a food bank helping the residents in the community. Can you still do good then when, you know, won't nobody know about it? You know, can you do good when at the last second an organization calls you to ask, can you, you know, can you adopt this family and help this family out knowing, you know, there's going to be no attention on it? And, you know, for me, it's it's easy to do a lot of, you know, good things in the community, you know, without without really trying to get any attention on it or not wanting any attention on it. Uh, for others, you know, it's kind of harder. Well, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. And I really appreciate you and all the work you've done over the past year and for being willing to come on here and talk about it again. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Emily Watkins, and you're listening to WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo. WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. 